At the end of the festival of Sukkot, there is an interesting constellation of important days. So we have the first two days of the festival, and then we have four days of Chol HaMor, the intermediate days, where it's not like a Yom Tov, but it's kind of like a hybrid. We're allowed to do work, but it's still the festival of Sukkot. And then the fifth day, which is the seventh day in total, the fifth day of the Cholomoed, is a day called Hoshana Rabbah. And then afterwards, we have the second festive days. And in the diaspora, we have Shmini Atzeres, which is the eighth day. And we have Simchas Torah, which is the ninth day. In Israel, they are all bundled into one. Shmini Atzeres and Simchas Torah are all the eighth day. So, just a little background of what exactly these days are and what they represent. So the festival of Sukkot is a seven-day festival. And the final day of the seven days is called Hoshana Rabbah, which literally means great salvation, please. Hoshana, please salvation, Rabbah. This is the day of the great salvation. And I think there's a good argument to be made that this is the most mysterious day in the Jewish calendar. The Talmud tells us that during the festival of Sukkot, they would go to a certain neighbor in Jerusalem and they would get these huge willow branches and they would bring them and lean them on the altar and they were so big that the tops of them would go on top of the altar and they would blow the shofar and the Kohan of the priests would walk around the altar for all the days of Sukkot and they would pray, Ana Hashem Hoshiana, please Hashem, give us salvation. And the people would come and they would also wave their willows and then on the seventh day of Sukkot, i.e. Hoshana Rabbah, the day we call Hoshana Rabbah, then they would do this encirclement of the altar, not one time, but seven times. And that's why during the festival of Sukkot, during the seventh day of Sukkot, we have what's called the Hoshanas. And we have the prayers of Hoshana, please give us salvation. And on the seventh day, i.e. Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshana, we encircle the Bima, the, the place where we read the Torah, seven times. Now, there's all kinds of customs for this day. And if you go to many congregations, you'll see that the Chazan has a custom to wear some of the garments of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Some of the prayers are recited with the tune of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. The introductory prayers, the Pesukah de Zimra, we say certain prayers that are a little bit unusual, at least for, for a regular standard day. The Kedusha, during the repetition of the Amidah is different than it is on a normal day. We read the 13 attributes of mercy. There's a lot of things going on on this Hoshana Rabbah day, which is like the fifth day of the Cholomoe, the intermediate days, that really raise some eyebrows. This is the final day that we shake the Lulav. And when we encircle the Bima seven times, all the Torah scrolls that are in the Ark are brought out of the Ark some people have a custom to take the rings that traditionally people use to encircle the lulav to remove them. 
And then we have a very unusual custom, an unusual mitzvah that is supposed to be reminiscent of what was done in the temple. And that is we take a bundle, typically five willow branches, and there is a very long prayer that said, but then there is a very unusual, very strange, very bizarre practice in which these arava twigs, this bundle of willow branches are beaten into the ground five times. And we're told the Talmud, this is actually a tradition going back to the times of the prophets. That's what happens on Hashanah Rabbah, the first of these three days that serve as the climax of Sukkot and essentially closing, so to speak, the season of the festivals that began with Elul and then with Rosh Hashanah and the Ten Days of Repentance and Yom Kippur and the intermediate days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, seven days of Sukkot, and then Shemini Yatzeres, the eighth day, and Simchas Torah, the ninth day, and then we're off of festivals till Pesach, but of course in the winter we have Hanukkah and Purim, the two rabbinic festivals. So let's try to understand what is going on. What's the deeper story of these days? How does it fit into the big picture of this whole month, this whole season of festivals? What is actually going on over here? So the Kabbalists revealed something incredibly fascinating. Of course, the Talmud tells us that every year on Rosh Hashanah, we are judged. Every person in the world is judged. And the Almighty opens up three books. There's the books of the completely righteous and the books of the completely wicked. And then the Benonim. And then everyone else. All the people that are between. They're a little bit righteous, but they're a little bit wicked. They're up in the air. And they are inscribed in a third book. And their status is pending. See what happens from Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the 10 days of repentance, all the way to Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the day of the sealing of that verdict. That's what we know from the Talmud. The decrees are written on Rosh Hashanah, but they're pending. And we have 10 days of repentance. We could fix things. We could return to God. And hopefully if there was a negative decree, if our verdict was less than positive, we could tear it up and have a better year and a better verdict. Comes on computer. And then we have the day of repentance and the day that culminates with the Ne'ila service. Ne'ila means to lock. And our verdict is going to be locked and sealed and done. That's the end. That's what we're told in the Talmud. The Kabbalists revealed to us that actually there is somewhat of a postscript. When someone does repentance, but the repentance is also not complete. They did a little bit of repentance. They were stirred a little bit by the tenets of repentance, by Yom Kippur, but it wasn't complete. So we're told that even though their verdict is sealed on Yom Kippur, it's actually not yet delivered. And there's still a chance to repent. And it's only on Hoshana Rabbah, 10 days 
after Yom Kippur, it's only then that the verdict is actually delivered to the implementers. And maybe on even a deeper level, just as we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and those are the two bookends of the 10 days of repentance, we have a redux of the 10 days of repentance. There's 10 days of repentance 1.0, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and then there's 10 days of repentance 2.0, culminating in Yom Kippur 2.0, and that is Hoshana Rabbah, and that's the day when the verdict is delivered. And therefore we're told that just as Yom Kippur 1.0, the original Yom Kippur, is a day of complete mercy, of complete kindness, that's the day that the Almighty is most receptive to our repentance. So too, Yom Kippur 2.0, Hoshana Rabbah, it's also a day of complete and total mercy. It's also a day that we could have all our sins expunged. We could be atoned for. We could be cleansed. We can be expiated. However, Yom Kippur 1.0, the original Yom Kippur, that's a day of fasting. That's a day of us abstaining from the physical world. Whereas Hoshana Rabbah, the only difference between Hoshana Rabbah and Yom Kippur is that we're allowed to eat. That's what our sages tell us. Now, in fact, the definition of Hoshana Rabbah, it means great salvation. And the commentaries note that it doesn't identify what is this salvation. What is this great, so to speak, salvation? Some suggest that the salvation is given to us by the greatest thing, of course, and that's God. We have a great Savior that wants to save us. Our verdict is signed and sealed, and it's being delivered, and the Almighty can stop it, and the Almighty can undo it, and the Almighty can rescind it. We have a great Savior. Moreover, Others suggest that it's a day of great salvation, i.e. that the word great is not going on the Savior, but on the salvation. People could be at a very low level. They could be in need of a spiritual resurrection. And this is the day where great salvation happens. Yet a third cadre argue that the words Hoshana Rabbah, great salvation, refer to the recipients of this salvation, i.e. the Jewish people. This is the day where the Jewish nation, the great nation, the Almighty's nation, receive salvation. And the truth is, it's all of the above. It's a day of all kinds of salvation. The Almighty is coming and he is giving out salvation of all manners to the great nation, and this is coming from the great Savior. Now, the Kabbalists add actually one more point. So we have the writing of the decree on Rosh Hashanah, and then we have 10 days to fetch it, and we have the sealing on Yom Kippur, but it's not delivered 
till 10 days later, and that is Hoshana Rabbah. But even then, after it's delivered, the implementers are not allowed to act upon those new instructions until the following day, until Shmini Yatzeres. Shmini Yatzeres is that last day to appeal the verdict, to undo the delivery of this verdict. We could still stop a bad verdict from being implemented even a day past Hoshana Rabbah. In fact, the name, the Hebrew name, Shmini Atzeres. Atzeres means to stop. This eighth day of Sukkot, again, it's its own festival, Shmini Atzeres, but it's appendaged to Sukkot. This is a day that we can stop the delivery from being implemented. I think of it sort of like, like if you send an email on Gmail. So a couple of years ago, they instituted a little bit of a, you know, a few second delay. You click send and then you have a little option, a little bubble that appears, undo. You could still undo it. If you're like, oh, I sent the wrong email. Oh, I added that person. Oops. I CC that person. And then if you sent it and if it's gone, it's too late. So they give you a few seconds, maybe 10 seconds where you could undo it. And that is Shmini Yatzeres. And of course in Israel, Shmini Yatzeres and Simchas Torah are merged together. It's only because all the festivals, we get an extra day. In the diaspora, we have two days, so therefore we separate Simchas Torah and Shemini Atzeres, the eighth and the ninth day, but truly they're, they're really supposed to be the same day. So I heard an interesting insight from one of the Hasidic masters. The Talmud tells us that if someone has a headache, they should go study Torah. Hachash birosho Someone whose head is hurting, Yasok B'Torah, should study Torah. So the Hasidic master said homiletically, Rosho, your head, of course, that's what it means. It means you have a headache, right? You have a migraine. Go study Torah. But we know that the Hebrew word Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. So if someone has a headache, if someone's head hurts, if someone's head of the year it was a little bit lackluster. It hurts a little bit. It wasn't done properly. If your Rosh Hashanah was not done properly, Yasok Torah, you could still fix it on the day of Simchas Torah, i.e. the day of Shmini Yatzeres. You have up to Shmini Yatzeres to undo and to perfect maybe what we didn't do properly enough on Rosh Hashanah, on the Rosh, on the head, on the beginning of this season of judgment. So that's the deeper insight of these days. It is the end cap of a process that started on Rosh Hashanah. Hopefully, if we prepared for Rosh Hashanah, it started for us maybe a little bit earlier. El, the month of El, we were getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, but then we were judging Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then we have a Shana Rabbah, the delivery, and Shemini Atzeres, the last chance to stop the delivery from being implemented. Now, I want to add the Hasidic Masters, they, I'm not exactly sure of the history of this, but they talk about how even after it's sent, there may still be a chance for that to be even undone, even after Shemini Atzeres, all the way till Hanukkah time. I don't believe that's found in the classic sources. It might be, so don't quote me on this. I don't believe it is, but it may be, so I'm not exactly sure about this, but 
there is at least an opinion that says even after Yom Kippur and even after Rosh Hashanah and even after Shemitah Tzeres, you may have all the way till Hanukkah to stop it. But that is something which is, I believe, not classically sourced, but I may be wrong about that. But regardless, once we understand what these days are, what they represent, clearly these are days that we must be very fastidious and very careful not to squander. So let's go back to some of the customs of that day. The halacha tells us that the chazan gets dressed up in that same white kittel, that same white kaftan that people traditionally wear on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And the tunes of the prayer are done with the same hallowed chanting of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's a day that there's lots of prayers and lots of focus and emphasis on repentance. We talk about the 13 attributes of mercy. It is Yom Kippur 2.0. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense that in this day of Shana Rabbah, we, or at least the day is designed for us to try to maximize the power of this day. But it's also a day, like the original Yom Kippur, where the Almighty is most receptive to our repentance. He is doling out, he is dishing out Hoshana Rabbah, great salvations. And therefore, it's important for us to try to be a receptacle of that goodness. I saw something really beautiful one of the Hasidic masters says that the reason why we have this custom to remove the rings of the lulav. So when you have a lulav and it's part of this triumvirate, the lulav together with the hadasim, with the myrtle branches and the willow branches, the aravos, and that's held in your right hand and you have the estrog on the left hand. So they're all connected. They're tied together. There's these rings that tie them together. And then the halakha tells us that the lulav itself it's supposed to have three rings to keep those leaves together. But we're told on Hoshana Rabbah, we remove those rings. So one of the Hasidic masters says, hey, where else in scripture do we have someone removing the rings? And he quoted in the book of Esther, of course, Ahasuerus takes off his ring and gives it to Haman. It says to him, you do whatever you want. You're holding the ring. You could do whatever you want to the Jewish people. Similarly, we're told, on Hoshana Rabbah, we remove the rings, so to speak. The Almighty is, so to speak, giving to us his signet ring, giving to us the ability to determine what happens to us and, of course, what happens to the people around us and to the world at large. It's like in Kippur. Our ability to influence what happens to us and to our family and to the world at large, is amplified, and maybe that's being hinted at the removal of the reins. We're getting the reins, and we're getting the ability to effectuate change. And there's this very bizarre mitzvah where we take a bundle of willow branches and we beat them on the floor. Very bizarre uh, custom, and there's a lot of Kabbalistic literature on exactly what is happening. But if you remember last week, we spoke about the four species 
the willows, the aravos, they were the ones, or they referred to the people who have neither a good taste nor a good smell. Like we mentioned, the esrog has a good taste and a good smell, and that refers to the tzaddik, someone who has Torah and good deeds. And then you have everyone in the middle who has either one and not the other. And then finally, you have the rush. You have the wicked one, and that is symbolized by the willow branches, not a good taste and not a good smell. And the mitzvah that we do on this day of great salvation is a mitzvah with the willows. To symbolize that this is a day of such tremendous salvation, everyone can be saved today. Now, it is a little bit odd. You know, the Kabbalists tell us, the Zohar tells us. So obviously it comes from a very reputable source. But it's not found in the Talmud. It's not found in the Mishnah. This idea that Hoshana Rabbah is a reenactment of Yom Kippur. It's a little bit odd that it's not more explicitly alluded to. And the answer is, is that, you know, we are required on this day to be joyous, to be in a festive spirit of happiness and exuberance. And therefore, our sages kind of only hinted at the power and importance of this day because if it was Yom Kippur, we were not capable, people today at least, maybe even in times of the Talmud, it's very hard for us to balance, to juggle the feeling of we're being judged today. And it's like Yom Kippur in every way, essentially. Oh, but you also have to be festive. And therefore, I say this, they hinted at it and the prayers and the days designed to evoke the meaning of the day, but it's not talked about in a more explicit way. So this is a little bit of the deeper meaning behind Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of Sukkot, the final day of Sukkot. And then we have Shemini Atzeres, that's the day of, of stopping the decree, and thus it is the final end point of a process of judgment that began all the way back on Rosh Hashanah. Now, there is another angle of Shemini Atzeres that we must talk about. The verse tells us that on this eighth day, we have a day of Atzeres, of stopping, and another day of festival. So it's not Sukkot, but it's appendage to Sukkot, and it's a day of celebration. Now Rashi, in his, in his commentary, quotes the Midrash, that explains what does it mean that it's a day of stopping? As if the Almighty says, says Rashi, Stop and spend one more day with me. And he gives a story. There was a king who invited his children to a festive banquet. And the festive banquet was going to take about a week. And then it was time for the princes, the children of the king, to go home. But the king had really bonded with his children over these days. He says to them, okay, I know it's time for you to go home. I know the party is really over, but let's have one more day of celebration together. 
Stay with me for one more day. It is difficult for me to depart from you. That's a very famous citation in Rashi. It's difficult for me, so to speak, as if God is saying this. It's difficult for God to depart from you. Stay one more day and then we could depart from each other. What this is implying is that these days are days of closeness. And we mentioned in the past. There are days where God is closer to us and there are times where he's more distant from us. And of course, the, the peak of that is the 10 days of repentance. Call out to God when he's close, when he's accessible. And when is he most accessible? 10 days of repentance. And the closest? Yom Kippur. And of course, we spoke last week how that really is extended. After Yom Kippur, we have like five days between Kippur and Sukkot, and that kind of extends the feeling and the power of Yom Kippur. And then we have Sukkot, a festival closest with God. And then we've had seven days of Sukkot, and now we're going to go separate ways. Of course, God is still close to us, but not quite with the same intensity as Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So now we're going to depart. Let's have one more day. It's difficult for him to depart from us. Now, the obvious question that everyone asks is, wait a minute, okay, if the departure is difficult, then how do you solve the problem? The king invites his children. Okay, one more day. Stay one more day. It's difficult for me to depart from you. So what's going to happen the next day? Won't it be difficult for him to depart from his children the next day? Aren't you just kicking the can down the road? The answer, as sages tell us, is that what's happening on this day, Shmini Atzeres, and of course in Chastorah, what's happening over here is that the Almighty and the Jewish people are forging a bond that's going to endure even when we go our separate ways. This day, the days of Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah, it's a time of close, shall we say, intimate union of God and the Jewish people. And that is going to forge such a deep connection that will withstand, so to speak, distance. The distance, so to speak, between us and God, after we're done, Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah, Even though we're distant, in our hearts, we're bound together, we're united, and the distance is not really a problem. Maybe you could go even a little bit deeper. Our sages tell us, in the Torah, there's two days that have the same name, i.e. Atzeres. You have the eighth day of Sukkot, which is its own festival, Shmini Atzeres. And there's another day, there's another festival that also is called Atzeres. And that is the festival of Shavuot. Now, of course, Shavuot has lots of other names. It's Chagabikurim. It's Zman Matan There's other names given to Shavuot, but it is also called Atzeres. Now, isn't that interesting? We have two festivals essentially half a year apart or almost half a year apart, many months apart from each other. Seem to be totally different days. 
yet they have the same name. Moreover, on a Kabbalistic level, we know that Shavuot is day 50. Day 50 after the Exodus is Shavuot. And Shemini Atzeres is day 8 after the beginning of Sukkot. And Kabbalistically, we're told that the number 8 and the number 50 are the same number. 8 is 7 plus 1. 50 is 7 times 7, which is just kind of more of the same, 7 of 7 plus 1. And the Kabbalists explain to us that 7 is always a description of nature. 7 days in a week, 7 years in a Shemitah cycle, 7 times 7 of the Sphira. In the temple, the menorah had 7 candles or seven seven lights, and that is a description of nature. Eight, that is a number that represents the supernature, the supernatural. And that is day eight, Atzeres, Shemini Atzeres, and day 50, the other Atzeres, Shavuot. Of course, we know that the Brismila, the circumcision, that bond that covenant that unites us with the Almighty is, of course, done on day eight. There's something close and intimate between us and God that is represented on this supernatural level on day eight. In fact, our sages tell us that Shemini Atzeres was really supposed to be 50 days after Sukkot, but because it will be inconvenient to come back to the temple in the middle of the winter. Therefore, they said, okay, well, 50 and 8 is really the same number, and therefore it's the same day, and therefore it's okay to do it just appendaged to Sukkot. Now, it's also interesting that there's only two festivals in the Jewish calendar that don't have any mitzvos. Every festival has a mitzvah, with the exception of Atzeres 1 and Atzeres 2. Shemini Atzeres, there's no mitzvahs, we don't set the circle, we don't set the luav. And of course, Shavuot, the other Atzeres, there's no mitzvahs that we do. And the deep insight behind this is, a mitzvah is there to forge a bond between us and God, to unite us with the Almighty, with our Creator. On these days, these supernatural days, it's not us trying to achieve the bond, but this is, so to speak, the fruit of all the work that we have done hitherto. This is what it looks like when we are bound with the Almighty. It's the day itself is what is the culmination of, of all the mitzvahs, we are indeed bound with God on Atzeres 1 and Atzeres 2, Shemini Atzeres and Shavuot. And if you understand what's happening kind of on a big picture, we have a month of festivals. And the final climax, the final culmination of all this work is Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. We started off in Rosh Hashanah. 
So that is a day where we declare God is king. We submit ourselves to his total dominion. And we acknowledge that there's other faux gods trying to get that mantle, but we reject them. We say, no, God is our king. And then we spend 10 days trying to remove all those internal blockades, the internal obstacles trying to distance us from God. That's what we call sin. And hopefully, over the course of 10 days of repentance, we've cleansed ourselves from all our sins. And of course, culminating with Yom Kippur, we emerge from that pure. And right away, we are launched into another process. And like we mentioned last time, Sukkot is also about abstracting away the inhibitors, but now we're transitioning to the external inhibitors. We start shedding those external walls that also present barriers and distance between us and God. And what happens after this whole process is done? With all the work we've done with Shani Yom Kippur and Sukkot, we're bound with God. We have this atzeres. The Almighty says, I cannot be away from you. Let's have this one day that we spend together, so to speak, in close intimacy. And now this unity is going to be forever preserved. If you study the sacrifices that were done in the temple on Sukkot, you'll find that every day was a different cocktail, if you will, of sacrifices. On the first day, amongst other sacrifices that were brought, there were 13 bulls that were offered as sacrifices. That's day one. Day two is 12. Day three is 11. Day four is 10, and then nine, and then eight, and then seven. Over the course of seven days, there's been 70 bulls offered in the temple. And it is in decreasing amounts, 13 all the way down to 7. And I should just tell us that that corresponds to the 70 nations. We are kind of addressing the fact that we have other nations that exist, but they start to progressively diminish in importance with each successive day. And once we're done, we've done our 70 sacrifices, we have Shemina Tzaris. And how many bulls are offered as a sacrifice in the temple on Shemina Tzaris? There's only one. There's only one nation that remains, and that's the Jewish people. We've abstracted away all those other influences, and now we remain. By the way, 71 is the same number as 8. 7 times 10 plus 1, that too is 8 and 50 and 71, those are all the same numbers, Kabbalistically. Now, on day eight, we're united with God. And what do we focus on? We focus on this relationship itself. What does the nation of God do? What embodies our people? The answer, of course, is Torah. And that's why Simchas Torah is the day in which this relationship has fully blossomed, has fully 
flowered, has fully matured. And we finish the cycle of the Torah. We complete the reading of the Torah, the end of Devarim, the end of Deuteronomy. And we start anew. We roll the book all the way back to Bracious, to Genesis. And we start from scratch. And what else do we do once we start? We dance with the Torah. I always say that there's nothing that compares the joy or even the experience of Simchas Torah. Of, again, Simchas Torah means the, the day of the joy of Torah. If you go to many shuls, most shuls, certainly if you have the great fortune to ever spend Simchas Torah in a yeshiva, you will see people dancing with all their energy for hours and hours and hours on end. What are they dancing with? They're dancing with a book. I don't believe that there's really any other example in the world of such a phenomenon. Even the most fervent believers of other religions don't do it. Do the Chinese dance fervently with Mao's Red Book or with the Communist Manifesto? Do people dance with the Quran or the New Testament? No one else does this. And here you see hours and hours of unbridled, joyous exuberance with the Torah. This is what the Torah is about. Our connection to the Torah is not merely didactic. The Torah epitomizes the relationship that we have hopefully developed with the Almighty. There is an amazing Midrash that we have to share. The Midrash is talking about the verse in Proverbs, chapter 2, verse number 6. Ki Hashem yitain chachma mipiv Das usvuna. For God will give wisdom, the Almighty will grant wisdom, from his mouth, knowledge and understanding. And the Midrash tells us that this is comparable to a rich person who has a son. And the son comes home from school and he sees his father's eating lunch. So his father says, come join me for lunch. And he gives him one of the items, one of the food items on the table. And the son says, no, that's not what I want. I don't want this food that's on the table. I want the food that you're in the middle of chewing in your mouth. So the father, who loves his child, takes the food out of his mouth and gives it to his child. Something he wouldn't do for anyone else. That's the analogy. The Almighty grants wisdom. But knowledge and discerning and insight, that's from his mouth, so to speak. That he only gives the people that he truly loves. Our relationship with Torah is more than just us learning a discipline. This is the domain of scholarship that I'm interested in. We are connecting to the Almighty's Torah. And he loves us like a parent. And he wants to, of course, grant us the wisdom of Torah. But we want more. We want the insight. 
We want the understanding. We want to go deeper and deeper to have astonishing clarity in Torah, to be able to apply Torah. And that's only from his mouth. And this is the day that we're celebrating this. This is the day that we're celebrating the intimate connection that we have forged with the Almighty. And we are encouraged to dance like crazy with the Torah. And our Seders tell us that if someone does this, if someone dances with the Torah, with all their energy, they are promised that Torah will endure in their descendants. That's a great custom that we see throughout the world from time immemorial for Jews on this day, the day of celebration of the intimate connection we have with God and with Torah to dance like crazy. The great Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the Mashiach, the spiritual dean of the Mir Yeshiva, in the Mir Yeshiva in, in Europe, it was the, the Harvard of the Yeshivas. And the 400 greatest young sages in the world were coalesced essentially in this one yeshiva. And they were led by this legendary sage, Rabbi Levavitz. So my grandfather of blessed memory, who was a student in this yeshiva, he used to tell over that in middle of the dancing on Simchas Torah, Rabbi Rucham would stop and give a short little talk, a short little idea. And he said, one year, he said, I don't know what the Almighty loves more. Does the Almighty love our prayer and our fasting on Yom Kippur or our dancing and our elation on Zimchas Torah? And allegedly, this one I did not hear from my grandfather, I heard from someone else. Allegedly, he also said that there are two kinds of yeshiva students. You have one yeshiva student that's always studying Torah. He's there for every session and he studies late at night and finishes books of Talmud. He is very meticulous about his Torah study. Very diligent. But then comes Simchas Torah and he feels a little bit awkward. I'm not much of a dancer. I'm a little embarrassed. He sits off to the side. Maybe he dances just a little bit. That's one yeshiva student. And then there's a second yeshiva student that if he shows up, he'll show up a little bit late to study and he'll go out for a cigarette break and maybe some coffee and he'll schmooze a little bit with a study partner and maybe he'll leave a little early and he'll go on vacations in the middle of the semester. He's not so dedicated to his studies. But come Simchas Torah, dances with vigor and with energy and with joy. Allegedly, Rabbi Ruch said, these two students are kind of the same. Because if someone does not experience the joy of Torah, on Simchas Torah, we have to call into question what their actual relationship with Torah is. Is it perhaps a study of a discipline? Is it perhaps just their field of inquiry? Or is it something 
deeper? Is this an emotional, intimate connection they have with Torah? I don't know. If we don't see someone dancing with great energy on Zuchas Torah, we have to have our doubts about their connection to Torah. Finally, one more idea I want to share for everyone who's still listening. All the way at the end, there's a little nugget of a insight that's very deep. So what happens in Zimchas Torah? We surround the bima, the ark, again seven times. We dance with the Torah scrolls. And there is a ubiquitous custom that at the beginning of every hakafa, of every encirclement of the bima, the custom is that we jump up and down and the words that we say are Moshe Emes Vitorasa Emes. Moshe is true and his Torah is true. You'll find that in every shul in the world or almost every shul in the world has this custom that seven times when we have the hakafos, the encirclements as it's called, the dancing on Simchas Torah, we jump up and down and we say Moshe Emes Vitorasa Emes again and again, and the kids know that this is the time where the parents throw them up in the ear. It's a lot of fun. Moshe Emes, Vitorasso Emes. Moshe is true and his Torah is true. Now, it's interesting words that we choose to chant when we're jumping up and down. Because those words first appear in a very unusual place. Our sages tell us, that after Korach, or at least his co-conspirators, after they're swallowed up by the sinkhole, they tried to jump out and they were screaming on top of their lungs, Moshe Emes, Vitoraso Emes, Vehem Badayim. Meaning, Moshe is true, his Torah is true, and they, i.e. them, these people who are making that declaration, they are incorrect. Talmud tells a story that one of the great sages met a Arab merchant who said, I will show you where the sinkhole is. And he takes this rabbi to this little cleft somewhere in the desert, and he puts his ear there, and he hears them screaming, Moshe emes, v'toraso emes, v'heim badayim. So it's a very unusual formulation for this particular day. This day, the day we're celebrating the completion of the Torah, we're celebrating the beginning of the Torah, we're celebrating the relationship that we have achieved, hopefully, with God over the course of the month of the festivals. And we choose the mantra of Korach, and we try to jump up as if we are trapped in the sinkhole, and we say Moshe Amos Amos. What is the meaning behind that? So I was schmoozing about this with my brother-in-law, Shmuley Botnik, and he pointed out something interesting. There's another custom that is ubiquitous on Simchas Torah, and that is that everyone gets an aliyah. Everyone gets a chance to read from the Torah. The problem is, what if you have a shul and there's 100, 200, 500 people. How could everyone get an aliyah from the Torah? You would be there forever. 
just reading the Torah over and over and over again because you have to read a minimum of three verses. There's a whole system of laws governing how you're supposed to read the Torah. And by the way, the custom is that it's not only the adults, people who are over bar mitzvah, even the children get a chance to get an aliyah. So what they do is they take all the Torah scrolls. So a shul, a bit shul could have, you know, 10, 20, 30 Torah scrolls. And they go to everyone, every Torah scroll goes to a different room. And they have a lineup. So if there's 10 Torah scrolls, it goes 10 times as fast. And they read that last portion of Deuteronomy, of Devarim, read it over and over again until everyone gets an aliyah. But what is the result of that? The result of that is that the first aliyah, the first reading of a cycle, which normally goes to a Kohen, because everyone is distributed in different places, and you don't want to have to give the Kohen the aliyah again and again, you actually have this unusual anomaly where a standard issue Israelite is going to get the aliyah that normally is reserved for the Kohen. If you remember, Korach, his, at least his initial problem with Moshe and Aaron was the fact that Aaron was made into the high priest. And he says, well, you know, why should Aaron be better than me? We're, we're after all first cousins. I should be the high priest. Or maybe no one should be the high priest. That was his line. The entire congregation is holy. You're no better than us. And then what happens in Simchas Torah? It's almost like an implementation of Korach's plan. The entire nation is holy. And for some reason, it's the Israelites who are getting the Aliyah normally reserved for the Kohen. So maybe we can suggest the following. Indeed, in our world, there is a certain hierarchy. There's the Kohen, and they get the first dibs, and afterwards there's the Levite, and then there's the Israelite, and even within the Israelite, there's all kinds of levels. You have, of course, the Mamzer, the bastard, born in illegitimacy, and they're like kind of the lowest level of the Israelite. There's all kinds of levels. Korach envisioned a world where there is no pedigree. Everything is a meritocracy. You can't say, oh, because you're a descendant of Aaron, and I'm not, you're better. Maybe there was something there. He was onto something. It's just that normally we're not living on that supernatural level. But maybe there's one day a year that a little bit of the Korachian agenda is going to be implemented. And that is Simchas Torah. Maybe we could say that what this day represents and what we are celebrating on this day is the ability for someone to have access to the great equalizer that is Torah. Our sages tell us, normally, you have the Kohen, Kohen goes first. You have a Kohen Gadol, the high priest, goes before everyone. However, however, what if you have a Kohen or a Kohen Gadol, high priest, that's an ignoramus. And then you have a bastard 
someone who is illegitimate, someone who is a pariah, but they're a great Torah scholar. Which one is truthfully deserving of more honor? Says the Talmud? The Mamzer. Torah is a meritocracy. And the Mamzer, even though genealogically he's an outcast, Torah gives him the opportunity to catapult all those other limitations. And like we said, this is the day that we take, or the day after, that we took the Aravos, we took those willow branches and we smack them on the floor, and we do a mitzvah with them, and we kind of get rid of all the other inhibitions that prevented a complete and total connection that we have that we can have with God. The high priest is amazing. He gets to walk into the Holy of Holies. But you know what he discovers in the Holy of Holies? What's already there before he even gets there? That's the Ark. And the Ark is emblematic of the Torah scholar. And the Kohen Gadol gets to walk in a couple of times a year on Yom Kippur. But you know who's always there? People have access to this meritocracy, to this great equalizer, to Torah. So the idea that there could be someone who comes before the Kohen Gadol. Korach's vision is kind of the order of the day on Simchas Torah. Very deep and interesting idea that maybe would explain why we are jumping and, so to speak, shouting the motto of Korach because this is maybe his day, the day that if all days were like this, maybe Korach will be correct. This is the day maybe where he is correct. So what we've learned is that this constellation of days, as we called it, at the end of Sukkot, have a lot of meaning. These are the days that we are completing. We are putting the final touches on what we started Rosh Hashanah. It's a day of the delivery of the verdict. That's Hoshana Rabbah. It's like Yom Kippur 2.0. And even Shemini says we could stop it. And then we have this day where the money says, I, I can't depart from you. You're too close to me. I love you too much. Spend one more day here. And we can have this one day together where we celebrate our relationship. Not the things that bring about the relationship. Not the things that are designed to create, to foster the relationship. We just have that relationship. And that relationship that will be forged on this Atzeres, celebrating with the Torah, celebrating that relationship, celebrating that connection that we have to God, leapfrogging everything else, hopefully that relationship will endure and will accompany us throughout the rest of the year. This was a total joy to study with y'all about this important set of days. And my hope is, is that we all have a wonderful rest of our Sukkot and we all have a wonderful celebration of Hoshana Rabbah, a day of great salvation, Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah, days where we have union with God, everything else is abstracted away and hopefully we make the most of these days and these opportunities and our year upcoming is going to be elevated 
and inspired by these days. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. I look forward to hearing your questions and your comments and your wonderful feedback.